This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope is a huge project with thousands of people in multiple places and organizations working on it. The project was hopelessly behind schedule and over budget. Then Greg Robinson took over as program director and the telescope successfully launched and is now a million miles from Earth. I'll speak to him about the project and his contribution to space exploration. Then. I'll talk to the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology about the Army's most ambitious modernization effort in over 40 years and his personal journey as a son of Korean immigrants to Army leadership. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The James Webb Telescope weighs as much as a school bus and its sunshield is the size of a tennis court. It's now a million miles from Earth and will be able to look back 13.5 billion years to when the first galaxies were being formed. Gregory Robinson is program director for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA. He's also a finalist for this year's Samuel J. Hyman Service to America medals. Greg, welcome to the program. Glad to be here, Mimi. Thanks for having me. You've just been named to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. That puts you on the same list as President Biden and Oprah Winfrey. Do you want to comment about that? <laughs> so first, when I, when I saw my name on the list, after going through the long list, uh, I asked myself, why am I here? Uh, but uh, I'll tell you, following up from the Sammy's reception, seeing all of the great work that's being done in government and different agencies and individuals, then I said, well, maybe I should be here based on this huge accomplishment. Um, so yeah, that's my thought. Well, let's start, let's talk about the telescope itself. Um, tell us about the purpose of the James Webb Telescope and what is NASA hoping to learn from it? So the purpose of the telescope, it's, it's a follow-on to Hubble, and Hubble has been around more than 30 years. It's brought us amazing science and images of our great universe. Uh, Webb is 100 times more powerful, if you could imagine that. So it's going to allow us to see deeper into the universe, uh, further back, a lot clearer, because we have infrared, so we can see through the smoke and gook of space. So it's going to show us the early formation of early stars, early galaxies, and the one, two, three hundred million years after the Big Bang. So, so are we so, really going to be able to look back and see like how the, the universe started? Uh, certainly not far after it started. A uh, hundred million years is still a long time. <laughs> it's so, but in space, uh, space time, as we said, it's, it's hundred million years is not that much when you look at 14 billion years. Uh, but yes, we will be able to, uh, just a few months ago, Hubble uh, showed us a, a star that was 900 million years after the Big Bang. Still blows my mind. You know, it's all very cool, and space exploration is great, but will this telescope give any tangible economic benefits to the American taxpayer? Do they get any return on their investment from this? So you think about the, the textbooks. Think about what we've learned uh, from science over the many years, certainly in the last 50 years uh, from science. So a lot of these things help our economy through the development process, the technology that's spun off into 
uh, commercial applications, so I'm sure there would be a lot of that. We have amazing new optical technology on web that's already being used uh, for ophthalmology, and, and I'm sure there would be many more. Uh, so uh, that's one piece of it, the, the economic benefit, but just the science part the, and the, uh, the motivation. Uh, if you look at after Apollo, all of the, the kids that went into engineering and science uh, schools, uh, and I'm sure this would do the same thing from an astronomy astrophysics standpoint. And just learning more about physics, we've learned a lot from people several hundred years ago. We, we will learn a lot more uh, going forward. When you took over the project in 2018, it was way behind schedule and way over budget. Uh, my understanding actually that it was supposed to originally cost one billion at, at launch and launch in 2007. I mean, that's, that's pretty bad. It's, it was way over budget. Um, what, was, what was causing the problems? Was it, was it technical problems? Was it management problems? Was it budgetary? So there've been uh, multiple incarnations of, of the cost and schedule. Uh, so the $1 billion was in the early days and we were still in early in, in what we call formulation, early in the development. Uh, and then it, it was baseline at a, at a different amount with a different schedule. Um, in 2010, 2011, uh, the last big rebaseline before I took over uh, was uh, to be launched in October of 2018. So I came on in, in 2018. Um, so many, many different reasons. One is just maturing the technology. We have 10 new technologies on there, which, which is amazing to have that many new technologies never been developed and or flown before. Uh, so technology, sometimes physics takes its own time. The other one is um, this stuff is difficult. Even once we get the technology matured, to put all of this into a system to make sure it's going to work. Um, uh, mission success was high priority, so it had to work. Uh, so it, it's it's uh, quite complex. Uh, we 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 can do better in some of our cost and schedule estimating as well. There's a lot of activity now in the agency to make that better. Uh, so um, so it's a combination of factors. So how did you like? Where did you start? How did you start working through the problems? Well, w one thing is when I came on, we had a we were just starting an independent review board, mostly external people, external to NASA, who were very well-known in the business, they gave us a lot of recommendations, 32 recommendations, so that helped a lot. Uh, so I had to work through all of those, the ones I thought were credible, and all 32 were. Um, so there were, there were two or three areas I consider uh, the, the most important. One was uh, having transparency throughout the system, from the lowest level all the way up to me, to the, to the ninth floor, the administrative suite, and, and to our stakeholders, OMB and Congress. So uh, one was creating that, that transparency. Uh, sometimes we, we report and or answer questions, and we answer the words and not the commander's intent. Uh, that was one big piece. And then just uh, mastering the fundamentals, uh, not making uh, what we call human errors over long periods of time. All of us are human, so we make those. Uh, so we try to mitigate human errors so you don't have to go back and do rework. That takes a lot of time. Uh, and there were a few other areas, but I'll, I'll, those are the, the big two for me. All right, well, we'll pause right here and we'll talk more about it after our break. Coming next on Government Matters, I'll continue the conversation with the program director of NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Gregory Robinson. He's the program director for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA. 
also a finalist for this year's Samuel J. Hyman Service to America medals. Greg, federal contractors obviously are a big part of making this uh, project successful. What issues did you have to work through on that side? So on, on the contractor side, uh, they do a lot of our development. Uh, as you mentioned, um, some of the same things I mentioned earlier, one in particular is uh, mastering the fundamentals, uh, reducing uh, human errors, mistakes, um, and some forward planning uh, beyond the near-term activity. So when we transition from one phase to another, uh, everything would be prepared and ready to go, and so you can just keep moving through the schedule. Those are two major areas. Well, tell us about the uh, James Webb Telescope deployment on uh, Christmas Day of last year. So on Christmas morning, um, a very special morning, uh, one because uh, of Christmas. Uh, two, we, we launched um, from French Guiana, uh, Karoo, French Guiana in South America. Wait, why did you choose Christmas Day? Isn't that a federal holiday? <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of ended up that way. We were scheduled to launch uh, in late fall. Um, and you know, one small technical reason or another, we, we slipped a little bit. As we got closer and the weather bit us, we didn't expect weather, uh, high winds and particularly rainy also, but the high winds kept us from launching. So we ended up on uh, Christmas morning, um, an amazing launch. Uh, so Ariane 5 put us in the right orbit. Uh, so we didn't have to use a lot of propellant after we separated, uh, which is good long-term. Uh, so since then, uh, we've, we've deployed all of the deployables in that first 29 days, that was a really big deal. That was the most complex, challenging piece. Wait, but how did you feel on that day when, o on that day, at I, that I, moment that you were like, this is a successful launch and we're good? I was totally elated. Uh, after I saw separation, uh, that was a huge satisfaction. Uh, I was proud of the team, happy for the team, because I'm the baby on web, so I've been on four years and many people have been on for 20 years. So I was ex extremely excited for the team itself. Uh, and, and happy for the world. I often say the, the world gave us this mission to do, and that was our opportunity to give it back to the world. So that's really how I felt about it. So it also achieved near-perfect alignment uh, of its optical system. Explain that. So after deployments, uh, we had to uh, get the mirrors uh, aligned and focused. This is an 18-segmented mirror te uh, telescope. So each mirror collects light uh, from the universe and then it, all of it has to process into one single mirror. That took about two months to do that. Of course, we use our science instruments to process that information. So our near-infrared camera, near-cam, we call it, uh, processed a lot of that. And since then, other instruments are doing the same thing. So it took us about two months to get that alignment and focus and, and everything just right for the mirrors. And it was almost perfect. Has, there, has the telescope discovered anything so far? Have we seen images come back yet? So we've, we've seen many images. Uh, these are not science images per se. This is for focusing, getting the instruments uh, aligned and calibrated. Uh, but yes, we've seen many. Uh, some we've actually published, so you can go out and see some of those. And, and one thing you will see is comparison of uh, two former or older satellites looking at the same thing that Webb is looking at today, and you can see the difference in clarity. It's, it's mind-boggling. So tell us about the timeline for the telescope. Um, what will it be doing? How long will it be in orbit? So we're a few weeks from completing commissioning, and then we go into science operations mode for the life of the, of the mission. 
Uh, so that's coming pretty soon. So what's uh, so commissioning? What's involved commissioning in that? Commissioning after launch and separation, we do check out, get the mirrors ready, get the instruments ready. Uh, all of that's uh, pretty close to done. Again, in a few weeks, we'll be done with all of that. And then we go into science mode. And that's normal for all of our satellites, uh, different timelines. Some just take a few weeks, some take two or three months, and this one is six months. Um, so we're almost there. Then we go into what we call the first year of science. We call it cycle one. We have just under 300 uh, different science activities um, from around the world. People compete for those. And they will actually start doing science. So all the images and information we get back after we go to first light, coming pretty soon, will be from the, from the actual science community. Uh, the telescope was designed for a five-year lifetime. Uh, we know we have consumables uh, for more than 10 years. And the limiting consumable is fuel. And now we know we have enough fuel long beyond 10 years. So looking forward to that. So you think it'll be in orbit for how long? Um, probably, um, certainly more than 20 years, I think it will be. And, and we think even longer than that. You started your career at NASA in 1989. Why did you join NASA and why have you stayed so long? So I joined, uh, one, because uh, uh, some of my uh, old colleagues from college uh, worked at NASA. Uh, we've always talked about it, uh, the, the amazing work that was being done. Um, at the time, I was looking to do something different, although it was still early in my career. So that's why I joined. And if, if you look at NASA, I think nine years running, best place to work in government. That's not just, just uh, talk. It really is a great place to work. The mission always drives us. So it's easy to get up in the morning. You look forward to the next challenge. So that's why I've stayed so long. And I know that you've got a, an engineering background and a man management background. What do you think needs to happen to encourage more African Americans to get into the STEM field and, and to move into higher levels, um, especially in the government? Well, I would say in general, uh, there's more work to be done in the earlier years, uh, in the elementary and middle and high school years to continue to uh, funnel people into that pipeline. Uh, there are a lot of factors that, that kind of uh, deter that or diminish uh, that motivation. Uh, so there's some work to be done there. Uh, at the, in the workplace level, government and industry, uh, one is we have to increase, um, we have to increase engagement with, I believe, HBCUs, historical black colleges and universities the old saying, you know, the judge said, why did you rob the bank? Well, that's where the money is. So uh, that's a huge opportunity to increase uh, STEM uh, workforce from the HBCUs. And we're doing a few things in those areas, but there's a lot more work to be done. All right, Greg, thank you so much for coming in and, and for all your work on this project. Uh, thank you, Mimi. Thanks for having me. Coming up on Government Matters, the Army's number two official for acquisition talks digital transformation and modernization. Stay with us. The U.S. Army is embarking on the largest modernization effort in over 40 years to confront the pacing threat from China. The Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology oversees the Army's acquisition enterprise. Young Bang is the principal deputy to the Assistant Secretary. Young, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. So it's no secret that Army acquisition takes too long and, um, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a problem for a while. What progress has been made? What changes are you planning to make? 
That's a great question. And everyone knows that the acquisition process has taken a long time. I remember when I was in the Army years ago, acquisition to get a new weapons platform would take 15, 20 years. And Congress has actually given us a little bit more authority to help accelerate the acquisition timelines. And if you look at some of the authorities like the MTA, mid-tier acquisitions, or the software pathways, it allows us to expedite the way that, and the speed in which we do acquisitions. And so if you look at some of the things we have uh, been actually working to accelerate the whole acquisition timeline, uh, and we've actually looked to implement a lot of changes in those ways. Uh, we've been working with the uh, OSD Department of um, Secretary of Defense on some of the software pathways. We have eight programs in the software pathway, uh, and we have several programs in the mid-tier acquisitions, and that allows us, like I said, to accelerate. And, and some of the impacts that we've seen is that um, we're looking on target to field 24 new capabilities by the year 23. And so if you put that in context, like I said, 15 to 20 years when I was in, uh, to now what we're doing and we're fielding things in about four or five years is incredible. And we have great partners uh, in the Army to do that. Army Futures Command is one of them. And then we have great partners uh, in uh, OSD that's helping us work through these new processes with these new acquisition authorities. Well, let's let's talk about those modernization plans because you don't have unlimited funds, obviously. What are your highest priorities? It, the highest priority is absolutely what uh, you know the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of the Army has really laid out. Secretary of the Army has laid out the six modernization uh, priorities for her, and some of those things that, that we're working on are things like long-range precision fires. You talked about. Uh, China being the pacing threat, we have uh, critical needs around long-range precision fires, and we're working on those. We have a PEO, PEO um, down in Huntsville that's working on hypersonics. We're working on these type of long-range precision fires. PRISM and some of those other efforts are some of the efforts they're working on right now. The Secretary of the Army recently announced that um, modernization and the science and technology enterprise would fall under your office, not Army Futures Command. Can you clarify what that announcement was? Sure. It's actually just, like you said, it was actually clarifying. There was a little bit of ambiguity in, in, uh, in there, so it was really clarifying the roles of Army Futures Command. Army's Futures Command is really working on the requirements and the future concepts. Uh, and we work uh, from the ASALT perspective on all the S&T as well as all the acquisition programs. So the programs that we talked about, we work hand in hand with Army's Futures Command. So if you think about the cross-functional teams, uh, we work hand in hand with AFC again as they refine requirements and future compet. Uh, I'm sorry, future concepts. Then we work with them to do the acquisitions and the development. The U.S. is sending a lot of weapons to Ukraine. Does the industrial base have the ability to reconstitute and replenish those stocks? Great question. Uh, there, there is a great amount of um, effort that we're working with the current industrial base now to really accelerate the scale in which we're actually doing the replenishment of the stock. So uh, things that are in the news these days, Javelin, absolutely, we have the scale, we have the capacity, and our partners from industry are actually accelerating the pace to do that. Uh, there are some things that are, you know, a little bit longer lead time, like the Stingers, for example. I remember I trained on those in the 80s, right? So if you think about that, uh, there are some parts that are a little bit obsolete. And so we're working with the manufacturers and the industrial base to really accelerate how do we actually um, develop new parts for those obsolete part, uh, parts. Sorry, redundant there. Uh, but really, those, some of those long lead times take a little bit longer. And so, you know, the acquisition community and the government, we're looking at potentially ways to accelerate the purchase of some of those long lead tight items as well as 
different designs to compensate for the long lead tight items. But all in all, you know, our partners in the industrial base have been really uh, great partners to work and accelerate uh, the replenishment of some of the stocks that are going over the Ukraine. Uh, Young, another big problem in DOD and in the Army is recruiting and recruiting a high-tech workforce. How are you doing on that? How are you doing on diversity? That's a great question. Uh, if you think about the modernization efforts, um, all of those are actually underpinned by a digital transformation. All of your components, not just the software, but all the components in the big weapon systems have a software component to it. And so because of that, we do need a digital literate workforce. Uh, and we're working on programs to upskill some of our workforce. We're working on new authorities to let people come from industry into the workforce and vice versa. But really, it's got to be a team effort where we work in the government side with industry to really help our needs. And we, we're open to small business, large businesses, non-traditionals to help us think about the problems differently, again, to upskill. But again, the, the other context, like me, I came from industry. We need more people in government that have that industry background that understand digital tr transformation to help, again, accelerate the Army modernization process. Just really quickly as we wrap up, I want to know a little bit about your personal history. I know that you um, came from South Korea. You were born there. You came at the age of five. Why West Point? Why would you go there? <laughs> so that's a great question. I grew up in Baltimore, so the question I always get, how come West Point and not Naval Academy? Uh, and Naval Academy is a great school, but I, I lived within the 30-mile radius, so my parents would have expected me home every weekend. And so I was like, oh, I got to get out of my backyard. So I went to West Point. But, you know, West Point... It's a storied uh, institution. Actually, after the Korean War, the U.S. government set up the Korean Military Academy. And up until, like, the 90s, the past presidents have all graduated from the Korean Military Academy. So a lot of uh, Korean immigrants, they only know two colleges, right? It's Harvard and West Point because of that history. And, of course, being able to give back to my country that's provided me so much opportunity is just, you know, a dream come true. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? 
It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.